Well, hello and welcome to our next Called, Connected, Committed podcast. And I am delighted to be joined by two people today. The first is my co-host, Lorraine Prince. Lorraine is our new Head of Networks here at the Church of England Foundation for Educational Leadership. You may have seen her on Twitter recently, uh, where as part of a network looking at SCNZ specifically, she talks about how hope can enable us to float, to have that big perspective um, on the questions that we're grappling with on a day-to-day basis. So Lorraine, it's great to have you co-hosting with me today. Um, And I'm pleased to introduce today's guest, who is Gary Orban. Gary is the author of a fantastic book that Lorraine and I have covered in post-it notes and all kinds of highlighting uh, called The Lone Sendco, Questions and Answers for the Busy Sendco. And I know um, as somebody who, as a deputy head, was sort of thrown into that role without any kind of prior experience, Experience. What an absolute gem of a book this would have been at that time. So I know that um, all kinds of people working in SCND will find this a really useful book. Um, so I'm going to kick off our conversation um, by asking Gary, um, in the book, you, uh, you start off by talking about how your dad had a vision for an inclusive society in which we wouldn't need specially adapted buses, but actually all buses uh, would be suitable for everybody. And this sense of wanting to create that kind of society with uh, that kind of education sector for all our pupils. How can we go about uh, trying to see that vision realised within our own schools or contexts? Yeah, hi Emily, hi Lorraine. Thank you so much for having me. It's really nice to be on the on the, on the podcast. So thank you. Um, yeah, so my my dad ran a Leonard Cheshire home, um, home for people for adults with disabilities, and so uh, and before then worked for a charity called Fab again with with young people with disabilities. And so my childhood was, you know, spent often being, you know, <laughs> around different events and around the, the Cheshire home that he ran. And I remember him very vividly when I was quite small and probably, you know, I think uh, this was I was being essentially uh, there were no plans for me. I had to go along to dad with work one evening while he gave a talk. And I remember him talking about um, about which is better, the bus. And they had a sort of Leonard Cheshire brand new shiny bus with some funds that had been raised. Uh, or the, you know, whatever the local bus service was called, the 173 or whatever. And it was sort of an argument which was better. And various people sort of put their hand up. I was about eight, so I don't think I put my hand up. But, you know, well, actually, this our new minibus, you know, is really shiny and it's so comfy and blah, blah, blah. Uh, the 173, uh, it often doesn't come. It runs late and it's a bit dirty. And um, so there's this conversation which is better. And my dad uh, unequivocally was saying, you know, that the 173, in spite of its um, irregularity, is better because it represents an inclusive society where actually we don't need separate buses and um clearly there's some sort of you know some nuance needed in what he was saying and it's not me um uh, having a dig at special schools by the way in the slightest clearly parent choices and all is is right is key in this and clearly um what the what children and young people want and where they feel they can thrive is, is totally key um but actually you know the, the the vision the notion has stayed with me from my dad of actually you know we can make more of our mainstream society work for people with and in this case young people with send and um that's a it's a sort of basic human right isn't it that, that, that we do and that people are well educated 
concentrate on neurodiversity and people are I don't I've come to dislike that word tolerance because tolerance is about just sort of a reluctant acceptance isn't it so it's more than tolerance it's it's just kindness and openness and um you know it, it, in my job I have the pleasure of talking to to uh, children young people parents school leaders senkos about you know this for young people with send but really it's just a sort of it's a it's a wider um um you know indictment on our society isn't it and, and what we want to to do and that we want people to be listened to and welcomed and accepted and and all those so that that was my how my childhood kind of brought me partly to where i am today that's brilliant in the um foundation for educational leadership we we, we have a vision around dignity and respect mm. and about the inherent worth of each individual um and in we're, particularly when we're talking about send it's so critical to start there with the dignity of each individual for seeing the inherent worth and in each individual person and then thinking about well how can we have the kind of um community where everybody is valued in such a way that we look to think about how can we ensure that everybody is included there is mm -hmm. access for everybody and so I just loved that beginning to your book um, because you're setting out your stall right from the start about this is about how how we can ensure we have those kinds of communities operating um, within our schools I'm then going to jump into leadership this is the found, uh, foundation for educational leadership um, and at the end of your book um, there's some brilliant um, there's some brilliant stuff in there about uh, what does it take to be a great sendco and it was making me think about what does it take to be a great leader of SEN whether you're a head teacher whether you're a senko whether you're a classroom teacher or a TA or a, a governor you know all these people who are actually really wanting to see that kind of community realize that we've just been talking about um, and the sorts of things that jumped out to me but I'd love you to kind of go into more detail about detail about some of this is you know the advocacy the need to be really present and see what's actually going on, you know, in the classrooms, not sort of sitting there writing uh, paperwork detached from everybody, being accessible um, and um, having that calmness that actually people feel they can come to you and they can talk things through and they can reflect. And I just, I'd love to hear more about what do you think uh, makes really great leadership of SEND? Yeah, thanks, Emily. So I think. The, the thing absolutely is positivity in the first instance. So I think um, it's very easy and I don't I don't teach 25 lessons a week. You know, I still teach, but I don't teach full time. I haven't for a few years now with different responsibilities of health. Um, but I, I like to think that I haven't forgotten just how how difficult that is and how stressful the job of teaching is and certainly can be. Um, but it's that um, it's not walking past conversations that show um, negative attitudes to a child with send or children with send. So, um, you know, I think we've all heard, you know, a colleague might say that, you know, they, he can't remember things one week that he can't remember or he just won't behave in my class or he can't cope in mainstream. She can't cope in mainstream, those kind of things. And actually, all those things may feel like they're very true. And that may be that that's a reflection over a you know, sustained period of time. But often, the, you know, sometimes also those comments are made actually without the right level of challenge and without going actually okay let's start and your starting point is they can't remember things actually let's let's look at how we're supporting their retention and what support you might need what support that young person might need in order to do that and you know that I, I don't like comments like you know they're lazy and I think that's because I think it's it's a really I suppose a lazy comment for teachers to make to call a child lazy actually the issue is they're not motivated in your lesson we all agree they're not achieving their you know their to their potential they're not doing their best let's say but actually how can we you know they're not at their center at their core lazy they're demotivated by whatever you're doing 
Um, so we need to look at how we're doing it um, and what support the young person needs. So I think positivity and when things, you know, often in such a stressful role as teaching, I think often students with send can be the hardest, not all, not in all cases, but can be the hardest ones to meet the needs of successfully. And so if your lesson isn't going well, it's easy to sort of think, well, this child, if they're removed, if they're not there, then, then, I, then I, my lesson can go better. Um, and so actually it, it's being that, that advocate, like you say, for them and, and that voice of positivity. Um, and some young people with SEND, especially you know, the younger they get or the more complex their needs are, actually their ability to voice the, their own needs in an appropriate way or and or in an articulate way is going to be reduced. So actually, it, it, again, it's advocacy. It's it's having a good sense of what a child or young person is likely to need. And that might be based on your conversations with them, your observations of them, your conversations with their parents, your reading of their paperwork, um, or just your knowledge of that sort of need type and how that typically presents. But it's that advocacy and, and trying to just, if you know a teacher is saying that there's a crisis, just supporting it calmly with positivity, with advocacy, and helping that that colleague to understand what your lesson might be like for that child, and what support they can be provided to you know to, to make things more positive for them. Um, I think it's knowing that within send um, within education more widely, perhaps, but the, the problem is never solved. If that's not too negative a way to phrase it, the challenge that a child may experience may never end. But that's not that doesn't mean that progress isn't being made. So it's understanding what progress looks like. And sometimes it's about reminding a colleague, you know, OK, this isn't where we need it to be yet. Six months ago, they weren't, you know, picking up a pen, coming into school, uh, speaking full sentences, whatever it might be. And just to remind again, it's about that that positive advocacy is reminding um, that member of staff where that young person or child has come from. Um, and and then it's about being really present. You know, you can't advocate for a child, particularly from behind a laptop. So I really hope that within the green paper, um, there are steps in there that mean that the um, the burden on um, Senko's to be behind a laptop is reduced. I would sort of challenge that and say I know that the times when I the times when I was a Senko when I spent the most time behind a laptop were when I was struggling when I felt like I wasn't, didn't have answers to problems and didn't have good solutions I could give teachers. Because for me to walk into a classroom as a Senko with that position of seniority, I'm expected to know things and be able to give useful feedback. And so when I feel like I'm all out of useful feedback because the feedback I've given so far hasn't really worked, that's when I'll be saying, yeah, well, I've got some emails and well, I need to do this referral form really. And as soon as a, a teacher says there's, a, there's an issue, I'm thinking about the EHC needs assessment request. And actually, it's totally, you know, it's missing that huge step in the middle of listening to parents, working with colleagues, listening to the people, observing them help, you know, doing what you needed in that massive middle space of what can I actually do rather than what can I actually fill in. So it is about being present. It's about taking the long way back to your office rather than heading straight back to your laptop. And it's about knowing that your email inbox may be sort of, you know, getting fuller. And those things that you started at the beginning of your day, so these are the these are the ten things I'd like to get achieved today. You might not achieve all of them, but you might have just been doing something far more valuable and totally unanticipated um, instead. And that there's enormous value in sometimes not getting to the bottom of your to do list because the the job gets in the way. But but the job is the is the good stuff. And you know three children at the back of a classroom not quite engaging and you see them have a quick chat with them give a little bit of feedback to the teacher and then for the next couple of weeks those science lessons let's say go better for those children you know we'll look at the enormous value of that so um yeah sometimes the job gets in the way but that's that's you know that's good that's brilliant thank you i'm going to hand over to lorraine who's going to go and dive into the nitty-gritty <laughs> of this but that's just brilliant thanks gary um so thank you for coming on the podcast with us. Um, 
I'm, I also am a previous teacher, uh, taught for about 22 years, but the book resonated um, to me on a level of a parent who has a child with three ex exceptionalities. Um, he is dyslexic and he has uh, ASD and ADHD. So when, you, when I looked at the book, you really laid out well how to support pupils through transition. Can you talk a little bit more about why that it's critical that we get that right transition from one um, school to the next? Mm, yeah, thanks, Lorraine. Um, so yeah, absolutely key. And I'll focus perhaps um, on the year six or seven transition in particular, because it's the one we know goes the least well often. But of course, I think that some of what I'll say will be useful to um, pupils who are going between key stage um, into primary, leaving secondary, going into sixth form or, in, you know, even onto higher education or, or into the workplace. So, um, but, I, but with a real focus on six to seven in particular, and we know that there's a huge spike between six and seven in things like fixed term and permanent exclusions. And, you know, I think we can really conclude quite rightly that 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 that's one of the biggest changes you go through as a young as a child young person isn't it is that change from um perhaps one form entry perhaps village primary school perhaps there's you know one teacher one classroom essentially and you move to 10 teachers 10 classrooms and a thousand pupils in a school and that's just an enormous change for, for children and young people so and when, when that child the young person has send you know all the more so um i i, I think in my experience working with autistic children, the time when it often goes wrong is related to a lack of predictability or familiarity or understanding of, you know, what we're doing now and what, what's coming next. Um, and so, you know, if you're actually moving entire school buildings and all your familiar adults are changing and everything, you know, that's clearly need for a really, really close focus on that. So that comes, you know, I'm, I'm aware on the, listening to the podcast there'll be colleagues from primary and from secondary. So I think we have a shared responsibility really, and um, it's in everyone's interest that that it goes well. Um, and if you're not if you're not getting the if it's a secondary, you're not getting the information and, and support you need, or if it's a primary, no one's asking you for the sort of information they need. Then I think it, we both have a responsibility to nudge the other one a little bit. Um, so it's a few things really. I mean, the first thing is, is clearly information. So I'm working with the Senkos that um, uh, I work with in my in my other roles as a leading centre of multi academy trust um, to make sure that we've got good information sharing systems. Firstly, so um, and now we're we're in early mid May, and even then we're getting a bit late in the day. I think so. We should, you know in 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 most of our schools we've got that happening already, where we're getting really good information going from the primary schools that aren't in our trust and that are in, into our secondary schools in the trust. So. Um, we, you know, we do it through a Microsoft form and it tends to get quite in a higher uptake than a sort of Word document that you have to copy and paste and save and all the rest of it. But um, uh, it's that information. So things that, that aren't purely negative, actually, either, but that are, you know, what works, what maybe are the special interests for this child? Where are they data wise in terms of, um, you know, reading, writing, maths, especially? Uh, and what support do you anticipate them needing next year? So just to get that really rich information and where that can happen in person through school visits from staff, all the better. Um, to sort of complement, you know, and go deeper than than a form might be able to. Um, it's also um, uh, about then working out something bespoke in terms of transition for particular pupils. So there's a um, program called Going Places, which was written for with with children with speech and language communication needs in mind, going from the year six to seven sort of um, you know transition. Um, but we found we've used that or a similar program in our secondary schools. So that will um, be for 
half day visits for a special transition group that we identify based on the information we get from primaries as needing additional visits. So everyone will come and have a taste of the day on our secondaries. That's quite typical, isn't it? Um, everyone will um, come in and have a certain amount of, we did cognitive ability testing, which gives you, you know, some information, you shouldn't base too much on it, but some information and some sort of starting sort of baselines really. Um, but actually then there are some who will need more. So we have four visits in the summer term uh, on consecutive weeks for a half day each where there's about 10 of them. They get to, you know, a tour of the school and to see what the, you know taste the lunch and meet some pupils and have a practice lesson and just become familiar with expectations and then of course what's impossible to do is to say this is the perfect transition program because the perfect transition program needs to be adapted to the um to the, to the needs of pupils so um actually does that child need a social story or a few children need a social story about what life is going to be like and uh, do they need a photo of their new head of year or form tutor class teachers um, do they need to be able to sort of walk the school, walk the timetable in advance? So there'll be all those things that are quite bespoke and that only come from really good information sharing processes. My, um, I was so impressed with a, uh, I've got a friend who's got an autistic son and when he was about to start his nursery, they sent him like a sort of shoebox, really, with photos of two or three or four key members of staff on a little lollipop stick uh, in a little shoebox cut out of, of the nursery, I suppose. And he was able to sort of pick them up and his, his parents were able to do a bit of role play with him on the on the place and on the on the um, journey there and on the adults who he'll, he'll come across when he's there. And I just thought it's those steps just to make it a bit more sort of, you know, understandable and relatable. And so sometimes that's visits, sometimes that's sending home information sometimes that's a secondary colleagues going into the primary school just to sort of so they get to meet an unfamiliar adult but in a familiar and safe location so there's, there's clear reasons for um you know for a good transition to take place and there are a myriad of ways to do it but i think the fundamental things fundamental pro, you know things are um are particularly about good information sharing processes and then a good series of making it making that child help to see themselves as a pupil there in september in whatever that mean might mean in terms of visits resources being sent home etc the last thing is about curriculum and where actually there are curriculum overlaps from year six to seven that's really helpful and that's going to be more helpful especially in terms of um students with send in terms of you know where we can really use their foundational prior knowledge in order to then build when they start in year seven and that, that's really problematic because that's not often within a send leaders control in particular there are wider curriculum design sort of issues and also where pupils come from 10 different primary schools into a secondary school well which curriculum do you you know base your own curriculum on but it's just worth having that understanding of what pupils know before so that you're able to pitch um that is appropriately ambitious and uh, but also appropriately supportive thank you gary i think you you talked about um you know in, in your explanation you talked about pupils how do they see themselves and i think that that's really critical especially you know, for all pupils, but specifically for pupils with exceptionalities. And, you know, I'm a big advocate on pupil agency and, and allowing them to tell you where they want to go and what they want to do. So how do we as school develop that in children with exceptionalities, allowing them to tell you where they want to go and what they want to do and how they see themselves? That's a really interesting question. Thanks, Lorraine. Um, and it, it becomes, it's essentially about every day walking the walk of we value what pupils tell us and that doesn't mean that pupils get to sort of set the agenda 
but it means we're responsive to, to when they are finding things wonderful and when they tell us they're struggling. And where pupils don't have the ability to tell us they're struggling because they don't have perhaps the language or the emotional regulation or perhaps the sort of secure attachment with you as a teacher to be able to sort of expose themselves in that way. Actually, we need to not only rely on what um, on what pupils tell us, but also treat behaviour as communication and, and actually look at what, what is this young person trying to tell us here. Um, so in terms of agency, I mean, there, there are certain structures that I'd expect to be in place in schools around SEND. So clearly pupil, uh, sorry, parents and carers need to be um, met three times a year, for example, in the code of practice. And you can think, well, how can we run that in a way that makes sure the parent is genuinely able to, um, to, to, to voice their opinion, but also that the child's voice can come through that in an appropriate way. And that might be through, you know, with the youngest pupils or with pre-verbal pupils or pupils with the most complex needs, actually, do we use talking maps? which is sort of I think designed by a speech and language therapist or are we using PECs if that's the child's normal way of communicating or are we just observing them in class and getting feedback from the teacher about what do we know is them at their most efficient and most successful and calm and what is them in a sort of a dysregulated state so it's about listening to that pupil in a way it's appropriate to them and sometimes you know if a child is is verbal uh, has appropriate or at least sort of you know functional speech and language skills then they can just tell us can't they and it could be you know it might start with i hate school and then they need to know there's an adult there who doesn't just sort of shut them down but you know says this is how we can have a conversation about this um should we go and take a walk and have it or should we sit here and have it um you don't have to have that conversation with me who do you feel most comfortable talking to this about? Um, or it may be that, you know, that they talk about it at home and, and a parent sort of emails and that's the sort of advocacy that takes place, but that we show that we're listening. And, and when, you know, school leaders and teachers and TAs you know, are incredibly busy people. So it's not always now and not always in the way that you need right now, but actually we, can, we need to be able to reassure people that their voices listen to, um, that even where we're saying, I'm sorry, there is a system or a, you know, this is in place, it's a school rule, the adults are in charge here, and that's the way schools have to run. But what I'm doing with what you're telling me is, and then we make sure, you know, that it's either what they what they need or what they're telling us they need it is honoured and is provided, or we say it's going to be provided in a different way or at a different time. And this is what I can do for you now. And then later we can either talk about this or I, we can implement this, or I need to go and speak to that colleague uh, about and then we actually follow through on that and it comes back. So I think, you know, at its heart, it's about listening to pupils, isn't it? And then the complexity there is about going when I can't, when that pupil can't communicate with me um, in, a, in a sort of typical way, what do I do with that? And how do I mitigate for that really? And also um, where I can't offer that young person exactly what they're asking for or exactly what they're telling me they need now. They might need to go in the sensory room, but there's another child in it and we can't get them out you know, actually, how do I show that I've still listened to that child and provided something, even when, you know, the world isn't perfect, we can't always provide exactly what that young person might want at the moment they want it. So critical, isn't it? Because, you know, we can invite the voice of young people, but then if we don't show that we're going to take it seriously or act on it, why would they keep talking to us? You know, I just think, you know, it's I, I love what you said. It's really important that they know that there's an adult who isn't going to shut them down, but is actually going to really 
take seriously what they're telling us and not get offended by the fact they say oh, I hate school okay well tell me more about that you know what's going on for you and how can we make that different but yeah. it is it is the action that follows up that is is going to enable that voice to the, the young people to feel confident that they can trust us yeah, um, that, with that telling us is, things yeah and that trust is at the heart of those strong relationships that young people need don't they and often you know I think with send it can feel very um, mystical and mystified and actually what I think sometimes it's about bringing it back to basics and what you know the vast majority of pupils with SEND will be able to tell you what they need and will be able to tell you in a way that is um, you know that, that doesn't take a huge amount of reflection or you know it, it'll, it'll be a failure at face value in which case it's about you know showing that um, we listen and we act and we're responsive and actually we don't care about them only or purely as their PE teacher, science teacher, whatever, but actually we care about them as an individual and we take an interest in them. And if they tell us something on Monday, we we make a point of sort of narrating it back to them on Friday about you said you were worried about this or excited about this. How did how did your weekend go? You told me that this was happening. And actually, it all comes from those strong relationships, doesn't it? And I think again, post pandemic. That becomes even more important those those strong adult child interactions and, and sort of relationships in school i think the interactions are very important but it's also the feedback that you give a pupil hmm. and and like i generally had a wow moment when reading the book and realizing that i give comfort focused feedback to my son mm. and not specific strategy strategic focused feedback can we drill down on that and and explain what exactly those two concepts are and how we can move towards a more strategic focus feedback setting. Yeah, so there's a wonderful book, Lorraine, thanks for that. Just to highlight, um, it's called The Science of Learning, 77 Studies Every Teacher Should Know. And I think there's a newer version, which is more than 77. I'm sure there'll be another one at some point, a little bit more, but it's so good. It talks about all these studies that aren't specifically related to SEND, but I think part of the problem starts sometimes when people treat children with SEND as um, you need a whole new rule book. And actually often I think the rule book is, you know, of what, what, what we know works with children and young people, actually then it's just about be seeing it through the filter of SEND. So there is evidence from the EEF and others that is specifically about neurodiverse learners, learners who SEND what works for them. But actually this research isn't specifically based on um, a population of, of neurodiverse children and young people. But, um, but I think I find it really relevant. And so it talks about comfort focused feedback. So things like, and the example that the researchers give, it, called, it's Ratten et al, a 2012 study, is things like not everyone can be good at math. So a child gets a poor score in a math assessment. And what do we say to them to try and make sure that they feel a sort of sense of self-esteem still? We say things like, that's okay. Not everyone can be good at maths or English or whatever it is. Not everyone finds poetry easy. Not everyone um, can, be, can run 100 meters quickly. Don't worry. Um, and you know those sort of comments around, don't worry, it's okay. This study found that what pupils hear when we say something like that is, you don't believe I'm very good at it and you don't really think I can be good at it so then you know for the people that natural conclusion might be so why should I try so um what they put in this study is the opposite is strategy focused feedback so rather than having that comfort focused feedback which accepts that they are bad at something um instead I mean I mean bad I'm sort of not meaning to be flippant there but you know that's the impression that's what they hear is I'm bad at this and, and that can't change that's a fixed mindset um actually strategy focused feedback would be um sentences that start with things like you can do me better next time if you 
do this or you got this one wrong because you and we're really giving feedback based on strategies and so when a child or young person gets something wrong or you know doesn't get the right answer in a, in a test or a, or a classroom activity actually try to we need to say things like try to remember that and this is how it works so we're not giving up and so whether that i think that can apply equally to pe or art or you know english math science whatever it is and equally to different ages as well we focus on the strategy that child needs to implement in order to succeed next time and we don't make that strategy so hard that they're never going to be achieved, able to achieve it we need to make sure it's related to the next significant step of progress that that child can make but well i think we often forget about that is around praise. So where a child, you know, scores a wonderful goal or does a beautiful painting or writes perfect poetry, then you know we um, we do the same. We say, "Oh, you're such a natural poet," or "You've always been good at football," or we make it sound like those aren't things that can that that the child had to work at. Maybe maybe they aren't. Maybe they don't seem to have been, but actually, if that if we want that child to go from where they are now to to the next step, then we need to give that strategy focused feedback. Because otherwise, and I know that um, these studies I think looked at sort of uh, early to mid key stage two and found that children who were given lots of um, sort of fixed mindset, if you like, you know, your your natural abilities have made you good at this. Actually, they struggle when things get harder. Um, whereas if you if children who are brought up more on a diet of strategy focused feedback, you wrote that, that poem went well because you thought about the rhythm, you know, the the, the rhyming pattern, for example. Um, then actually, when the when the work gets harder in whatever subject, they're more able to cope with that. They're more able to take that feedback because they understand that the reason they succeeded and continue to improve is because they've taken on good feedback, not because they have these innate abilities that they either do or don't have. Thank you. As a parent, that was enlightening. As a Thanks, former sir. teacher, I know a lot of teachers who are going to be listening to this are going to be like, yes, I need to go in and think about how am I uh, giving feedback and, you it's know, is yeah. I'm sorry, I think I'm directly then, Lorraine, sorry, but it, I think it's particularly relevant to SEND, isn't it? Because you know the, the, the students with SEND often experience, you know, failure, if not to use too blunt a word, in school more than others. And that's certainly how many students will feel about their school experience and so actually how we give that feedback when things aren't going well is absolutely critical for us going actually we believe that you can do this it's not we're saying it's okay don't worry don't worry don't worry because actually well they obviously are you know or they may well be worried and in fact we want them to have a certain level of hmm how can i do better i wouldn't call that worry but i want them to be thinking uh i want you know i have a hunger to do better at this and if we all, essentially, if we if we accidentally give them the message that that doesn't matter, then the, then you know it's going to change that mindset for the negative. I think. I mean, it was wonderful talking to you. I, I think, like, we're probably going to have to do a second session because no there's problem. still so many questions <laughs> to ask you, and I'm sure that um, the listeners are feeling that way too. Uh, it was a privilege to have a conversation, and and it was enlightening to read the book. And again, you know, I made sure that my husband read along with me so that we can go forward with our, our son and allow him to feel in a safe and secure environment in school and, and, and you know, find the successes. You may not find them in all mm -hmm. spaces, but find the successes that can take him to the fulfilling the goal that he has in mind of what he will be like as a successful adult operating in this world. So mm -hmm. thank you thank so you, much. Thank Pleasure. you.
Gary, thank you so much. Lorraine, brilliant to have you on the podcast today. Um, there's a whole load of other resources related to SEND in this month's Cool Connected Committed newsletter. And we are also, in case you haven't seen it, setting up a, a national network for anyone who is involved in leading in the SEND space. Um, so if you're interested in that, do get in touch with us and we'd love to hear from you. Gary, thanks again. Thanks for your wonderful book. Thank you for spending time with us today for unpacking the green paper and for answering our questions. Thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks. Thank you.